All right, Ephesians chapter 3. We'll be looking at Ephesians 3 in a moment. I want to wrap up our conversation last week. We were looking at what we could call spiritual disciplines, but it was in the context of sowing to the Spirit. Our study last week was really based on the presupposition here that, uh, that sanctification is a harvest. When you sow to the Spirit, you reap that fruit of the Spirit. And then we were trying to examine what are some reinforcements uh, of sowing in the Spirit? What, what promotes that? What fosters that? What encourages that? And we had a few that were offered uh, reading scripture, of course, the Bible itself sanctifies us. That's Jesus' promise to us as he leaves us in the world, but instructs us not to be like the world. How is that possible? How do you walk through the mud and not get muddy? And Psalm 119 and Jesus' echo of it in John 17 tells us it's by giving heed to the word. We talked about prayer. Uh, prayer, and the author called it a planned neglect of other things, even other important things. An intentional plan to neglect something in order to pray. I was reading a prayer book with one of the men in the church, and it had a a whole chapter on prayer as it affects management, Uh, how how we default to doing, and doing's not a bad thing. The New Testament is full of instructions about what to do, and yet the doing should be sustained by prayer. Are we first dependent on the Lord before we go all independent in executing our plans? Uh, Someone raised the matter of worship, and we we thought about the author's sentence, worship isn't just an affirmation that God is good, it's an affirmation that God is better. And so in worship, we give our attention to the true God as we forsake other things that we think are less important. Uh, The author lists community, community as something that promotes sowing to the Spirit. And he gives a little bit of a list of ideas. Just listen to these and think through how community can benefit a mindset of sowing to the Spirit. When the church gathers, there is this grace that God bestows in the gathering through obedience to all the commands of Scripture. So when we gather, we remind one another of the truth. When we gather, we are taught the Bible by those gifted for that purpose. We pray together for God's help or in praise or confession. We model Christian change and holiness by accounting to others uh, our struggle and where the scriptures advised us on getting back on the right path. We see God at work in the lives of others. We remind one another of God's greatness and goodness as we worship together. That could be in the singing. That could be in the sharing again of how God answered a prayer in the past week. We're giving opportunities for service. We provide accountability for one another. All these as just mere examples of why togetherness, community, both on Sunday as we gather and throughout the week. Why these gatherings, why these meetings, why these moments of togetherness are essential to our sowing to the Spirit. It keeps us focused on this is the right task. This is the way to live. If I do these things, if I sow to the Spirit, I will reap in the Spirit. 
He talks about service, calls us to an other's focus, Philippians chapter 2. When you come together to be thinking of other people's needs as more important than your own. Text doesn't address whether they are or not. It just says you should esteem them. You should weigh them to be more important. In other words, don't focus on self. Focus on others. You may have a full plate today. And you may be able to share that with someone. Philippians 2 is not forbidding that. It's just saying don't be so consumed by what you've been through or what you're facing in the coming week that you're kind of ignorant to what's going on in the lives of people around you that you should be ministering to. The author says suffering will help us to sow to the Spirit. It makes us choose, suffering does, between faith and doubt. Sometimes we don't think of that as a choice. Sometimes we think of that as a happening. Suffering occurs, life gets hard, and we're questioning why or when God is going to come through and do something. But that didn't just happen. That was a choice to live by faith or to live in doubt. Suffering makes us choose between peace and turmoil. Again, we think that's a happening. We think life got chaotic and we're all amped up. But the reality is we chose chaos and tension and anxiety over peace. That can go beyond all understanding if we come to God for that peace. If we sow to the Spirit and choose peace. Suffering will make us choose between courage or fear. Ultimately, trust in the Lord or some kind of hope that something will just change. So there's a lot of ways to sow to the Spirit. The author wanted us to start thinking of these spiritual disciplines that would, that would foster sowing to the Spirit. If it's that simple, don't sow to the flesh, but sow to the Spirit this week then there should be more in the scripture that informs that process. And I think we can look to these ideas and others. Remembering that sanctification is a harvest. So sow this week in the direction of a harvest of holiness in your life. All right, Ephesians chapter 3 then. We want to answer the question in this chapter, which is chapter 9. How can we support one another in change. How can a wife help her husband in a change effort? A husband to a wife. How can parents help their teenagers? How can teenagers help each other? How do we help each other in this process of change? If God's agenda for us is change, to become more like Christ, and if God's agenda for us is to be part of a body of believers. And I think we see both of those in Scripture. Then, it is not a stretch of biblical reason or argument to say that other believers are part of God's plan for our change, for our sanctification. We step back and remember God said He will sanctify. The work He began, Philippians 1.6, He will complete all the way until that day when we see Christ and we're made perfect. So we know God's going to do it, yet we also know he commands us to work towards sanctification. And now there's this third element, that if God's plan for us is sanctification, and we see it is, and if God's plan for us is to be part of a body, the church, and it is, 
then that body, the church, is part of God's plan for us to change. As the author puts it, change, then, is a community project. Now, this takes no responsibility off the individual. They can't say, well, if I had a better local church, I would change more. That's not what the author's saying in this chapter. He's simply saying, you can't always be alone in your struggle and your besetting sin and be confessing and, and forsaking and yet never engaging with the church, with the body of Christ, in all of the one another's of Scripture. Uh, if you neglect all of those, then you will never, ever be changed as much as God wants you to change. If there was some case where that would be possible, then we could scratch all the letters and all the information about the church and just say, great, all you need is your Bible and the Holy Spirit. But that's not the, the fullness of God's plan for sanctification. It is his word, and it is his spirit, and it is his church. We need the church. It's part of God's plan for our change, for our Christ-likeness. So again, in in God's promise to do this, we would say God has ordained, he has predetermined that he is going to make us like Christ and we will get there. But he has also ordained or predetermined the means for that happening. And you can look to your spouse and recognize that's part of God's plan for your sanctification. You can look to your extended family in a household of children and you can realize uh, all that dynamic of family life, those people are part of God's plan for your change. You look to your local church and you realize those people are part of God's plan to help me change. And it forces us to look around on Sunday mornings and think, what am I missing? Which of these tools in the toolbox am I not taking advantage of? How does God want to help me change by a relationship with so-and-so? Maybe my prompting to go and talk to so-and-so is, is actually designed for my good, even my thinking, though my thinking may have been, I'm out for their good. God is making it his business to change us, and yet when he says he wants to change us by the help of the church, we often resent that kind of interference. We would never say we resent God poking his nose into our business, the Holy Spirit's conviction. But if someone else dares confront us about a harsh word to a spouse or about the parenting of our kids, we suddenly get very defensive as if to say, who are you to tell me what to do? Well, they are God's plan to help us in our sanctification process. Clearly, the teaching on the New Testament church all the one another instructions in the Bible demonstrate that we need each other. Think about it this way. All those one another commands in the scriptures, dozens and dozens and dozens of them, were given to everyone else in the church surrounding you. So they're supposed to do all those things to you, to exhort and rebuke and encourage and support and admonish and love and all those other things. They're supposed to do that to you to help you change. That's the community we're talking about. We're not, you know, we're not borrowing Hillary's plan, you know, it takes, you know, a, a community to raise a child. We're saying it, it takes the church, God's community, to sanctify saints. 
Again, God doesn't need the church. It's his plan. It's his means for accomplishing his predetermined plan and, and predetermined based on Romans 8. This is what God said he was going to do. And he uses that word to say those who are called to faith in Christ will be ultimately glorified. And that process is called sanctification. Ephesians chapter 3. I want us to look here and see the community nature of this sanctification that unfolds here. In Ephesians chapter 3, we come to the prayer that Paul gives in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. How do we get a community process of change out of this prayer for all of these sanctifying measures of growth in the church. And in part, it's by recognizing that all of the references to you and your are plural. It's, this is a prayer for the, the group, for the church as a whole there in Ephesus, and by extension of our understanding of God's preservation of his word for the church today. This prayer is for you all to see all these things accomplished. So if we start thinking plural, we, we begin again with Paul coming before the Father and praying that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you all to be strengthened with power through his might in y'all's inner being. That come out all right? <laughs> You got to think Southern to get it in there. Every one of the you and yours is, is you all together. It, it's not just, I'm praying this for this individual. I'm praying this for every individual of the church. So you're doing this together. You're being strengthened together. Christ is dwelling in your hearts, uh, in all of your hearts, that you all together are rooted and grounded in love and comprehending together what is that love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So our togetherness is to be promoting everything in this text. Your relationship with anyone in this room in this hour and the hour to come should be defined by this kind of help, this kind of mutual benefit. We often throw around that word fellowship and we just think of it as kind of backslapping and handshaking and how you doing. But this is the nature of fellowship. There's something in common. You're sharing something. There is a mutual passing of something, and that something is this data that's flowing back and forth between you, and it's data about God, his love in Christ to us. It's about his promise of strength and sustaining grace in hard times. So in, in, the, in the hard moments, 
The relationship is feeding this truth about the sustaining love of Christ and that promised grace that even in our weakness makes us strong. And you encourage that one who is weak. And then when the, when the data is, you're receiving is more of God's been good and look at his blessing and this is what he did this week, then you're joining them in praise. Well, God is good all the time, but we can certainly receive these good gifts. And you're rejoicing with those who rejoice. Even on the same Sunday in other conversations, weeping with those who weep. But Ephesians 3 should be true in all of those conversations. Pointing each other to uh, the love of Christ, the fullness of God, who does far more than we can ask or think, whose power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, is at work in us. These are the things we remind ourselves of so that it would be true that the church, you as part of it, and the other believers making up that local manifestation of the church, that the church is bringing glory to God through Jesus Christ. It's a community of change. And that change, as unfolds in Ephesians 3, is so that God looks good. So that in the church, he receives glory. Because he takes rebels and enemies and sinners and he makes them his own people, saints, sanctified in Jesus Christ. The change that you manifest this week, the holiness that you harvest from sowing to the Spirit is is not to your glory but to God's. So that people would see that and think, wow, what's going on with that person? And hopefully that's what your neighbors thought this week and your co-workers. Hopefully some person you never met and maybe never meet again had some experience that made them think, why is that person different? Change for the glory of God. Change in Ephesians 3 so that in the church he would receive glory. This maturing process continues on into Ephesians chapter 4. It's the same plural effort down there in verses 11 through 14, familiar verses, where we're told that God gave the apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. That's great for you to strive for the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. For you to get into the word this week on your own and to think, I need to be contributing to the unity of the faith and I need to be growing in my knowledge of the Son of God. But the one and others would demand that you share that knowledge. What did you read this week about the Son of God? Share that this week. Because the text says we're all supposed to get to that place. And sometimes we need to hear it from each other. So we all come to that unity of faith, the knowledge of the Son of God. We're all trying to attain this mature manhood. We're all trying to reach the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. None of us need to be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine like an immature child. But all of us should be maturing. We do it together. 
Again, not absolving anyone of individual responsibility, but recognizing that when we exercise our individual responsibility, that doesn't mean simply I progress in the Christian life. It means I progress in the Christian life, and in my progressing, I'm looking to see how I help someone else down the path. You grab someone by the hand and you start pulling them along. You you call out to those ahead, keep going, we can do this. Go on a long, long hike this week with all the kids in your family. And if you need some, borrow some from one of these families with a lot of toddlers. And try to take a two-mile hike through Burr Oak with toddlers. You'll be dragging some of them. You'll be carrying some of them. You'll be coaxing some of them on. And you'll think, we're never going to make it. Well, quite frankly, there are some of you here that in your struggle in the past week, thinking of making it to heaven, you're thinking we're never going to make it. I keep falling into this. I keep sinning here. I keep losing it with my spouse. I keep, I'm never going to make it. And what you need is somebody to say, no, come on, we can do this. You know, if it were all those toddlers on the trail, you'd say, it's not that much further. You can make it. It's not that bad. You're not that hot. You're not going to die. You'd be saying all those things. Well, just kind of, Make that a little more adult sounding and you have pretty much have the biblical one another's of helping people in their sanctification. It's just reminding them of what? Of the fullness of God, of the love of Christ, of his sustaining grace. You can do this. It's that community help that we all desperately need. The author says this collective process of spiritual growth, of getting down the path, is interrupted by sin, when somebody sins. He says, therefore, sin is a community concern. The individual's sin becomes a community concern. Now, immediately we'll probably think, well, you know, we we think of the phrase, who am I to judge? Well, I would say you're a Christian filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, who's told by Jesus to judge righteous judgments. So if anyone ever asks you that question, give them the answer that they may not be looking for. Um, we are supposed to be discerning and helpful. Galatians 6.1, if your brother's overtaken in a fault, ye who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness. You're not jumping down his throat and acting as if you would never do something like that. You're saying, I can understand what happened there. I I believe the devil really is deceitful and subtle and wise in his temptation. I can see how that happened, but we know what God has said, so we've got to get on the right path, and you help them down the path. Sin becomes a community concern. And he says this, you should be concerned about sin in a believer's life. Can you think of some reasons why that is true? if you think it is true. You should be concerned about sin in another believer's life. Why would that be? What do you think? Why should I be concerned about sin in another believer's life? Is it any of my business? Why does it matter? What do you think? Oh, well, um, the analogy of the church being a body, uh, 
uh, if one member is sick, then it affects the whole body. Yeah, so based on the analogy of the body, if one member is suffering, is injured in this case, um, the whole body suffers. I'm sure we could go around and share our wounds from the past week, you know, what's ailing you, and we'd hear about all kinds of medical stuff we don't want to know about, right? Um, But we all understand that. The old, you know, stub your toe and split the toenail, and that's not going to be forgotten for a while. Your whole body's going to be mindful of, of that. So there's, there's a concern for the health of the church that demands our attention to someone else's sin. What else? What else do we know? Yeah, Brooks? I think it's Christ-like behavior when, like, <clears throat> if he saved me, cared enough for me, and I should care enough for that person who's struggling to get them, like, give them words of encouragement and help them out in their struggle. So it's this Christ-likeness. It's this imitation of Christ who seeks the lost sheep for that effort at restoration. We should be restorers at heart, rescuers. Dare I say saviors in the sense of imitating the Savior, of using his saving love and Showing people, look, this is what you need. So as like under shepherds, we're, we're going out to rescue sheep. We're, we're pulling them in. All right, what else? Yeah. Go ahead, Zach. The white blood cells in the body. Right. He did that again. You can kind of be the white blood cells. Oh, sure. Okay, so building on the analogy of the body, you're, you think white blood cells. You know, they they come rushing to the scene of that splinter your child gets in their finger. Here they come with all their, you know, disease-fighting strength. Um, The Christians should be that way. So instead of thinking, oh, he sinned, let's all come over there and wag fingers. No, we're coming as the white blood cells. Uh, We're bringing the truth of the healing that is found for sin. Uh, when, When that pain and that infection sets in, Here's what the Bible says. Here's what the healing balm is to borrow from the prophets, speaking of Christ's ministry to come. Good. David? Um, I was just thinking, if you see one who is overtaken in a false or spiritual disorder. Yes. So we are, we're, we're in the restoration business. When someone's overtaken by a fall, we are concerned about, one, the glory of God, the, the health of the church, and the testimony of the church to the glory of God. And then ultimately, we want to restore that one. We want them back to the place of being in that category spiritual. Because they kind of got caught up in the, in the carnal, the fleshly for a moment. They weren't exercising a yieldedness in the spirit. Because Galatians 6.1 follows Galatians 5. And all of the walk in the spirit, keep in step with the spirit. What happens if you don't? Well, you manifest the works of the flesh, and you're overtaken by the sin. So let's get you back to walking in the Spirit. What do we need to do to promote and to foster that sowing to the Spirit? And I think that's the biblical definition of accountability. There's only so much I can do in being the one to ask hard questions. But frankly, asking questions doesn't make you spiritual. The accountability is what are you doing to sow to the Spirit? 
And if you're not willing to do that, then do I really count you as part of the body? Are you a Christian if you're unwilling to do what Christians do? They go after change. They want to be like Christ. They, they hate sin. Not that we're perfect, but we're, we, we're, we hate sin and we want to be like Christ. That's the definition of that life of repentance and faith we're talking about. So as a community, we help do this together. And even just thinking of a community concerned about sin would help us to better understand what takes place in the process of church discipline in its, in its more public stages. Because in the private stages of church discipline, you're just going to some friend of yours and saying, man, I, I don't think that's the best way to do that. It, it seems like from Scripture here, there should be more kindness. And I just think you were came across pretty harsh there. And, and you talk to that brother and you try to help them to see they were wrong there. In the latter stages of church discipline, when the person won't listen to anybody who talks to them and multiple people have tried, it becomes a church matter. And when you read 1 Corinthians 5, you realize some of these reasons we just talked about are there. The testimony of the church is harmed. When we're saying this is a body of people who are concerned with becoming like Christ, and yet there are people in that body that aren't concerned, apparently, about becoming like Christ, then we're sending a mixed message. So we deal with that. And Paul uses the expression of getting the leaven out of that lump of dough where it's going to spread through all of it. So we're right to think of change as a community process, as my sin affecting the body. But rather than thinking like on the negative side, all the damage and stuff, think of, no, the body is good for me. The body is good for me. Remember those white blood cells. The body is designed to bring help and healing to that one who has fallen into sin. Community, then, is this God-given context for change. The author says we see Christians who model godliness. And maybe people come to your mind, not because in any way they're perfect, not because there weren't Sundays where they showed up and worshipped and probably had a bunch of stuff they were still dealing with, um, but likely there's someone that comes to your mind as over the long haul, they just modeled godliness, a consistent godliness that was proven. You just saw it. Uh, even in their failure, you saw the godly response to the failure. That's a benefit of being in the body. This is the value of, of children getting to know the other adults in the church. Uh, this is why I would say it's an advantage to having classes, and it's not just the parent teaching, but it's some other adult, because your kids see other people who are serious about the Word and who love the Lord Jesus Christ and want to talk about Him and show how the Word explains Him. For my experience, it was Christian school and teachers and then coaches on ball teams and such, and all of those people contributed to the molding influence of a body of believers helping each other uh, down this path of sanctification. So don't neglect the value of the church. It's a context for which godliness uh, can, in which godliness can be modeled. Um, and you can model it to others as well. 
Think about it. The church in Ephesus is no utopia. These aren't perfect believers. And so Paul's prayer before the Father is all of this changing process happening together there in the church. Because the church, as as much as we like to present ourselves as without problems, the church is made up of people with problems. With problems with sin itself and its temptation, problems that are kind of brought on by circumstances and hardships and physical suffering and trials. Life is hard, and the devil is quite an adversary. And this means we are going to have some struggles at times. And yet we gather, and if we're not careful, we we want to present an image that really shows that we don't have struggles, that everything's fine, that we don't have any problems. I want to read, uh, the author quotes Diedrich Bonhoeffer from his book, Life Together, a small book on community. And in understanding the grace that we've received in our salvation and in our process of sanctification, then being able to use that grace to graciously help others, which may mean firmness, but certainly graciousness, that with that spirit, Bonhoeffer writes regarding the attitude of the church. When he says, the pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We are not allowed to be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy, but the fact is we are sinners. Now I'm sure you could dissect that a little bit and you'd have a lot of scripture you'd want to throw into that, but I think he was on to something in recognizing that sometimes we are a little put out, like we're almost shocked that somebody sins and happens to address their sin struggle, and we kind of back up a little bit and think, whoa, I thought this was a place where we were a little better than that. When the reality is, we should be the ones grabbing our medical bags and running to them thinking, okay, let me, let me give you something else that might help. Has anybody mentioned this to you? Has anybody said they would do this for you? Hey, can I help? Because that's what a community of believers does. We help each other change. We help pick up the pieces. We show the the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that promises that confession and forsaking sin is truly the way to mercy. So we don't want the formula to be confess and forsake deal with the reckoning judgment of the church and then find God's mercy. No, the equation is God's. Confess and forsake and find mercy. So where does the church fit into that? Well, the church helps them recognize why the sin needs to be confessed, how bad it truly is. We don't let a confession be like, well, I should have done better, but, you know, it wasn't that bad. I didn't really mean it. No, the church says, no, that's not a confession. What you need to say is, I chose sin and self over God 
and obedience to his word. Now, what am I going to do to forsake that? And the church helps and exhorts and encourages, and then we are the demonstrable mercy of God. We are the ones showing the forgiveness. We are saying, you belong here. You're welcome here. That sin failure hasn't disqualified you. We see your heart for the Lord and for doing right, and we're going to help you get it right moving forward. We are part of that mercy of God. And now God has used you as the church to kind of rub off some of the rough edges and the people around you. You say, I don't like confrontation. I don't like tension and conflict. I hate the thought of going to somebody and saying something. Well, I don't know that that's always a bad thing. That kind of that kind of sensitivity to how others would feel may at times be a very spiritual thing, but it could be that you go into the ditch on the other side of the road and, and you never say anything, you never exhort, you never admonish, you never rebuke. When those are one another's that are laid at your feet, you must accomplish them. So even if you're a person who doesn't like conflict and tension, you have to recognize God may still use you to sanctify someone else, to, to file off those rough edges, to help them see where they need to change. The author says this, one of the great things about living as part of a community is that in community, people walk all over your idols. In community, people walk all over your idols. You might have something you really love doing and it seems like it's taking you away from life in the body, and you're not able to participate much because you're always doing this, that, and the other. And somebody else just comes in and says, well, why, why do you even care about that? Why are you spending all your time on that? And you think they're insensitive and rude, and they don't understand what's going on in your life, but the reality is they just trampled on your idol because they're looking at a big picture thinking, why are you giving so much time and attention to that when there's the kingdom and the church It's much like our children when they put together forts in the living room, precariously balancing sofa cushions, TV trays, blankets and pillows, and then they climb in there and one sibling walks by and sneezes and the whole thing comes down. And they're like, Mom, they messed up the fort. And there's always a weird irony in the word fort and such an easy collapse of the fort. Um, and that's how it is in the Christian life sometimes. We, we have our little forts and somebody comes and messes it up and we get all upset that they're meddling and, and mind their own business. And, and the reality is they trampled on our fort, on our idols. And biblically, we might say they're, they're helping us see 2 Corinthians 10 that we need to pull down the strongholds before they get any stronger. And we should be thankful for a community that would be willing to challenge us, to ask us to think about something. And I think that's a helpful technique that you might want to tuck away. If you're one of those non-conflict kind of people, uh, then come with a question. Come with a question. The old counseling adage is, questions prick the conscience while accusations harden the will. So, 
if you're recognizing in your mind, I could be wrong, but I think this is what I see. In a sense, you have an accusation to make. But instead of just coming and say, you did this and you need to change because of this, ask a question. Ask them if what, they, what you saw in that scenario was accurate and do you think they could have handled that better? And now, now you're inviting them to engage in help rather than asking them to kind of put up a wall of defense and protect their, their image. It's a helpful tool, and at the very least, it might help you if you're timid in coming into tension or conflict by recognizing all you're going to do is ask a question. And you're going to allow the Holy Spirit to use their integrity in answering that question to be the counseling, to be the rebuke, to be the exhortation. Community is God's design for our sanctification. We need to be hearing truth. When we read on in Ephesians chapter 4, there's, there's an incredible vision that's laid out here as the body is equipped and they come to the unity of faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, they come to mature manhood, they come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, they're not immature children tossed about by all the ideas of the world and all the worldviews and doctrines. Rather, verse 15, in contrast to being children tossed to and fro, carried about by winds of doctrine, human cunning, craftiness, deceitful schemes. The opposite of that is we speak the truth in love and we grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Those are some hard sentences to diagram if you're trying to find a subject in a verb because there's so many phrases tucked away in there. But it's helping us see if we're going to avoid immaturity and slow sanctification, then we need to be speaking the truth to each other. Yes, in love. It's kind of a given, but it's added here because as soon as you start truth speaking, you start getting into, well, I'm a prophet, and so I just tell it like it is. No, you're being rude, and you're probably a jerk, right? Because if, if you need to say that, you're probably already on thin ice, and you're hearing it crack under your feet, and you thought, uh-oh, I'd better say something that makes this feel spiritual. No, speak the truth in love. Does that mean you can't be firm? Does that mean you can't hold your ground? It doesn't mean that. It means firmness may be essential. It's truth. But do it in love. Why? Because we're all trying to get somewhere together. That's where the text began. We're all trying to get somewhere together to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So I'm doing this not to show that I'm better than you or that you're worse than everybody. I'm doing this out of love. Knowing that Tomorrow, I might not be walking in the Spirit, and you're the one that's helping me, Galatians 6.1. That's not a permanent condition there in Galatians 6. A once-for-all kind of fix. That's the ongoing reality of keeping in step with the Spirit or not. We help each other when we're not, knowing that they might help us when we're not. And it's the same here in Ephesians 4. 
this lofty vision for sanctification, but it happens when we speak the truth in love, and now we all grow up into Christ. And the body builds itself up in love. So we need to hear the truth. And I would venture to say that I don't think it's legalistic to say we need to hear the truth every day. Now, I'm not telling you how much Bible you have to read or how long the thoughts need to be about it or what format you intake the word. Can there be a day where you don't open the actual Bible that you might have in your hand now and you don't actually open it and read it and you're still perfectly spiritual? Yes, I think so. But I don't think that day could go by without the word that would be found in that Bible if it was open in your lap, that that word wasn't in your mind. So I'm not here to say you have to do this many chapters a day. I'm here to say the word of God needs to be part of your life daily. We need to hear the word. So how is that going to happen? Well, I think a lot of times we just rely on bot radio to listen to a sermon and that would be our intake for the week. We'd like to say, well, the church gives me all I need. But too many people are going to define that by whatever happened in the equip hour and the sermon. That was a lot of word. That should get me by for the week. But I would venture to say we need more than that. Something a little more personal, a little more targeted than a sermon that goes to everyone and by the Spirit to everyone individually. But by more personal or targeted, I mean something hit you squarely. What's going on in your thinking on the word? God doesn't ask you to figure out who needs to hear this. He just says, exhort them with the word. Let the word dwell in you richly that when you speak to others, it comes out. So share it. Tell somebody about what you're hearing. Probably the best way to speak truth in the people's lives is simply tell them how the truth has helped you this past week. So if we were going to share in the Sunday school hour, hey, what are some truths we need to hear? You should be able to think of something in this past week that you were thinking on that could be shared. But a lot of times we are caught so flat-footed that it's that just awkward dead silence. There is nothing we can think of. And that needs to change. The, The community of speaking the truth in love needs your voice. So next Sunday... What if you initiated your own speaking the truth in love program, right? No no pastors organize it. Your plan is this. In some conversation in the course of before Sunday school, before the service, after the service, I'm simply going to drop this bomb on somebody and tell them, I read this in God's word this week and thought it was good. Thought it was helpful. What do you think of it? That would hardly be obnoxious or imposition in the context of believers gathering. But how many of us are good at doing that? When was the last time we did? And so let's become this community of truth so that in speaking the truth to one another, we're becoming a community of change. More and more we're recognizing God is at work in the church for my good. That should be my perspective. God is dealing, he's helping people in this body, 
and just by their sharing of that, it's good for me. And you know, the few times this does happen, or at least it comes to my attention, people will say things like, you know, I, I shared this on Facebook and I didn't even know, and yet somebody said that's like exactly what they needed to hear. And we always think that's like, oh, it's like miraculous. And it's not. It's just the nature of God using his church immersed in the word to be a help to each other. That's how God works. And he wants to do that again and again through you. So don't hesitate or don't resist being in the word so that you can speak truth and the church becomes then a community of change. Heavenly Father, would you steer us again and again to your word like stubborn sheep? We're going to get busy this week and go every direction but to that direction of nourishment towards that well of living water. Uh, Steer us back there, Lord, please, uh, so that we would not become parched and, and even barren in our spiritual life, but that we would be a a supply of truth, not only for our own soul's nourishment, but for others' souls, that we would spill out and be refreshment to them as we point them to you and to your promises to us, your church. Thank you for the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. Thank you for his seeking and saving of us. May we make much of that as we gather now to worship And as we go throughout this week, we pray in his name. Amen.